Luke chapter 22. We're going to be looking, starting in verse uh, 31, in a moment. Question. How are you faring in the fight for your faith? How are you faring in the fight for your faith? Some of you this morning might say, I'm doing pretty well. I'm using the Lord's means of grace to persevere in the faith. I'm reading the Word regularly. I have a prayer life. I bring my cares and concerns to the Lord in prayer. You might say, I have spiritually encouraging relationships with other believers. I'm willing to be vulnerable with other believers to encourage them, and they encourage me in the faith. You might say, I make corporate worship a priority in my life, and so on. You say, I think it's, I think it's going okay. Others this morning may answer in that same question by saying, what fight? Fight for my faith. What, what is this all about? There are those whose spiritual lives are kind of like a roller coaster. You got all these ups and downs, and all those ups and downs are determined by something outside of yourself, just circumstances. You're neglect of spiritual disciplines, and you're kind of just stumbling through your spiritual life. There may be a third group as well. When we ask, how are you faring in the fight for your faith? You might say, I know there's a fight for my faith, and I feel like I'm barely holding on. Maybe that's you this morning. What I want to do is encourage that group of people this morning, and I think it'll be an encouragement to all of us as a result. Our hope is to encourage by showing us that we have a resource in the battle for our faith greater than any enemy that opposes our faith. There are times when even genuine believers might feel that they are just hanging on by a thread. These aren't times to doubt. These aren't times to give up, however. These are times to see our weaknesses in the light of Jesus' strength. These are the lessons which Peter learned in our text this morning. He learned these lessons during those fateful hours that Jesus uh, was arrested and then carried away to crucifixion. In Luke chapter 22, the conspiracy to arrest and to kill Jesus is well underway. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. They're observing the Passover together. And then Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God that is to come. And he makes clear that before the kingdom comes... He is going to suffer. His body is going to be broken. His blood is going to be shed, all to usher in the new covenant. Jesus also makes it clear that before the kingdom of God would come, his followers would also have to suffer. Let's read together in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Here, Jesus turns to Simon Peter. And he says to Peter, personally, Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That's a bold pronouncement. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Until you deny three times that you know me. Peter's got to learn some lessons here. Peter would have to learn that there are enemies who have his faith in their crosshairs. 
he would have to learn that there's a fight over his faith and that a connection to Christ in this world is going to bring a cost, a cost to be paid. A few verses for you. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. John fifteen nineteen says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 17, 14. I have given them your word, this is Jesus praying to the Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Looking pretty grim. Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. One more. Philippians 1. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, now hear that I still have. The point is this. Connection to Jesus Christ brings sometimes turmoils. Connection to Christ brings cost. And sometimes that cost is being found in the crosshairs of spiritual enemies. Oftentimes, the world and circumstances. But what we're going to see in a moment is that there's a greater enemy behind those circumstances as well. You say, well, I've got a plan. My plan is just to fly under the radar. Keep your head down. Don't make any waves. The culture will just look past you. Your enemies will look past you. And uh, you're not going to suffer. Well, there's a problem with that. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you and I want to live a non-compromising life, if we want to be faithful to Christ, there's going to come a time where we find ourselves head-to-head with a godless culture, with uh, spiritual enemies, as we're going to see. Peter would learn this truth in a very dramatic way after Jesus was arrested. And so Jesus, in preparing Peter for that moment, says in verse 31 of our text, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus repeats Simon's name, Peter's name, for a couple of reasons. First, there's some urgency there. It's essential that you listen to me in this moment, Peter. But it also speaks of his care for his soul. There's a tenderness there. Peter, Peter, listen to me. Satan would have you to sift you like wheat. And here Jesus pulls back the curtain to the spiritual realm so that Peter could get a glimpse of the spiritual warfare, the spiritual warfare that's going on all around him. He also shows us that there's a spiritual war raging all around us. Peter warned, or sorry, Paul warned the Ephesians of this in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual war that's raging all around us, and we see physical manifestations of that. We see opposition to Christ. We see immorality. We see rebellion against God. We see persecution against God's people. We see the earthly manifestations, but what Paul would have us know is that behind the scenes, there's a greater enemy at work, and spiritual warfare is at play. Peter would soon face 
agony in his soul. When he finds himself fearful in the face of worldly opposition when Jesus is arrested. But he's got to understand something. This is what Jesus is encouraging him to do. He would have to understand that behind all worldly opposition is the enemy of our souls, Satan. It's as if Jesus is saying, you have a spiritual foe, Peter. You have a spiritual foe, and he's coming hard after you, Peter. So be ready. Who is that? Well, that's Satan. Who's Satan? Chief demon? Led a rebellion against God? Responsible for tempting Eve in the garden, plunging the whole human race into sin and corruption. This is that Jesus whom Jesus called a murderer from the beginning, the father of all lives, the tempter, the evil one. Satan, who is the ruler of this world, the Bible says, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. This is spiritual reality. And so Jesus warns Peter, you are in his crosshairs. But why Peter? Why Peter Peter of all people? Well, it was upon Peter that Jesus specifically said, uh, it's upon you I will build my church. Peter, in his confession of Christ as the son of the living God, uh, yes, Peter, I'm going to build my church upon you. It was Peter to whom Jesus would entrust his sheep. It was Peter who would eventually become the lead apostle in Jerusalem. So why is Satan going after Peter? Well, because Satan is attempting to foil Christ's plan to build his church. And look how Jesus describes what Satan desired to do to Peter in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Well, that's an agricultural metaphor. We don't have a lot of uh, uh, in common with that, I think. But the idea is this. A farmer, or more likely a, a woman, would take a sieve filled with wheat and shake it, shake it side to side violently in order to separate the wheat from the chaff. Or you would toss it up in the air so the wind would take the chaff away and the wheat would fall back down again. The idea being that Satan sought to bring Peter through difficulty so that his faith would prove to be only chaff. I'm going to shake you up and toss it up and we're going to see that it's just chaff. There's no wheat there. Your faith is false and it's all going to get blown away. Satan would have you to sift you like wheat. In other words, Satan wanted to destroy Peter's faith. Satan wanted to destroy Peter's faith. Satan has lots of tactics. First of all, it's to try to prevent faith altogether. Matthew 13, Jesus, in giving the parable of the soil, says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which was sown in the heart. This is what was sown along the path. The idea that the gospel goes out. Individuals hear that gospel. And Satan is always there when the gospel goes out to be there and to sow doubt or to, uh, uh, to shake that faith or that uh, potential faith, preventing others from believing. Matthew 13, also we see another tactic. Jesus says, the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels, saying that at any given time, you have the gospel going out, you have it germinating, you have genuine faith being developed in others, but then there's somebody else at work. Satan is also sowing seed as well, and there's weeds growing up, those sons of the evil one. And of course, those sons of the evil one, those weeds, seek to choke out the gospel which germinates in the soil of others' hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 3 Chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. These are the tactics of Satan, blinding minds, hardening hearts, snatching away the gospel, trying to prevent the gospel from taking hold. But when Satan can't prevent belief, he seeks to destroy faith. He tries to prevent believers from persevering in the faith. Jesus warned the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Then he says this, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. If Satan can't prevent faith, he simply seeks to shake faith. Satan is the adversary, and our faith is the target. He works in the hearts of the enemies of Christ as well. Satan has sown in the world enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ, enemies of believers to produce circumstances which try the faith of believers. Judas, in Luke chapter 22, the Bible says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. It's Satan who entered the heart of Judas when Judas betrayed Christ. In John chapter 8, Jesus says to unbelieving Jews, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In Acts chapter 5, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land. Remember them saying that they had sold land and given it to the church. In reality, they had lied, driven by Satan. So Satan creates hostile circumstances. Circumstances hostile to Christ and Christ's followers and to our faith. And so make no mistake, some of the trying circumstances in your life and in my life, are deliberate attempts to shake our faith. Satan would love to see us succumb to the pressures of life and the tests of our faith and to fall away from Christ. On the other hand, every single test of our faith could also work in the other direction. It could work to strengthen and to establish our faith. It all depends on whether we run from Christ when life gets hard, or if we run to Christ when life gets hard. And you say, but I'm very weak. I don't have the strength to persevere. I'm afraid I might not persevere. Well, this is where Peter's experience in our texts serves as an awesome encouragement. For Peter, circumstances are about to get very difficult. It'd be very important for his faith to withstand what was to come. By faith, he would have to stick to what he believed, even when circumstances around him put incredible pressure upon him and his faith. And so this is the same for you and I. Faith fills the gap between what we say we believe and what we sometimes experience in our circumstances. Consider what Peter said he believed. John chapter 6, verse 67 Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? As well? A bunch of Jews just decided not to follow Jesus anymore. They were following him. He said some stuff they didn't like, and they all departed. 
Jesus turns, looks to his other, looks to his other disciples and said, you want to go away as well? Peter, Peter says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, what do you mean are we going to forsake you as well? There's nowhere to go. You're the only one with the words of eternal life. Of course, we're going to be faithful to you. Okay, well, remember that, Peter. What else did Peter say? Well, in Luke chapter 22, verse 33, when uh, Jesus warns him about the trials coming, he says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Pretty confident, Peter. He's determined, I know what I believe, and I'm going to be faithful to you. No matter what comes, I will follow you even to death. That's what he said he believed. But his circumstances were about to change. As Jesus was speaking to his disciples after praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, look in Luke chapter 22, verse 47. Luke 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Circumstances for Peter became incredibly difficult. Peter had declared that he would never desert Christ. I will go with you to the death. He declared that Christ and Christ alone had the words of eternal life, so where in the world would he go? He said that he would follow, again, him not only to prison, but even to his own death. But now, in the face of persecution, it appears that Peter has changed his tune. And so we ask, what do we expect that we will do? What do we anticipate we will do when difficulty comes? Metaphorically speaking, when the soldiers show up, Or, maybe elsewhere in the world, when the literal soldiers show up, how will our talk about Jesus hold up in light of our changing circumstances? When life gets hard, when it becomes very apparent that attaching ourselves to Jesus brings cost, how will we respond? This was a terrible season in Peter's life. All those lofty pronouncements regarding his faith and his faithfulness, his love and loyalty to Christ. And when the major testing came, it appeared like Peter failed. It's a warning 
for all of us, I would say. But here is where I see some encouragement here, where I think we should all see some encouragement. I feel like there may be some here this morning who are on the very same threshold of failure. Be encouraged. Life, circumstances, opponents, they may have beat you down spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And frankly, you feel like you're failing to rear up under those difficulties, those pressures. Uh, You're failing to respond with faith. Maybe you feel like you're on the precipice that if it's all up to you to persevere, you're, you're going to fail, certain failure. But this is the encouragement. Although Peter's faith failed in the immediate, it did not fail in the ultimate. And as we'll see, it's not because Peter was some spiritual giant. Look in verse 61 of Luke 22. Jesus, after Peter denies Christ three times, denies him three times, Jesus turns and looked at Peter. And in that moment when Jesus makes eye contact with Peter, it says, Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And verse 62 says, and he went out and wept bitterly. You say, well, I thought you said you are going to encourage me through this text. Where's the encouragement there? Well, it's right there in verse 62. He went out and wept bitterly. Well, that doesn't sound like resounding spiritual victory. That doesn't sound like prevailing faith. But Christ turns and looks at Peter, and in that moment, Peter saw Christ being led away to prison, ultimately to execution, and Peter was overcome with the reality of his own faithfulness, unfaithfulness. He remembers Christ's warnings. He remembers the fact that Christ said that he would pray for him. He remembered Christ saying that he would pray for him so that his faith would withstand Satan's attacks through the earthly circumstances. And in that moment, Peter's response to all of that is weeping bitterly. What is that, weeping bitterly in that moment? Well, I think what's apparent is that is genuine repentance. That's genuine repentance. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, over an incident where that whole church was required to repent, said this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. And we can say here, Peter's being grieved, but he's being grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see that earnestness, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now that's Paul to the Corinthians, but I think the exact same thing is happening in Peter's heart. In that moment, he's overcome with the reality of his own weakness and his own unfaithfulness. But he remembers that Christ is the faithful one. Christ is the one who prays that his faith will not fail. And in that moment, Peter, I think, turns from that uh, confidence in his own faith. I will follow you to death. And he begins to rely upon Jesus and the fact that Jesus is praying for him that his faith would not fail. This repentance is not the result of Peter's heroic 
faith. It's not the result of his brute endurance. It's not the result of his personal strength. It is the result, again, verse 31, Jesus said, Satan has demanded you to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. His faith endured because Jesus interceded on his behalf. That's it. We should be careful when we talk about heroes of the faith. You go to the Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews, you talk about men and women of history, and these people who have endured persecution, endured inquisition, endured personal tragedy with their faith intact, and we say, wow, what awesome people. I, I wish I had faith like them. And you read the biographies, and you say, if only I had faith like those individuals. We should be careful to recognize that that resoluteness and that determination to remain faithful to Jesus, the ability to persevere in the faith is not some special trait that's endemic to some spiritual giants. Instead, we should recognize that we are all vessels of clay, subject to the same weaknesses, and that it's Jesus, it's Jesus who sustains our faith by ever living to make intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Consequently, He, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our faith is sustained. We persevere in the faith because Jesus is actually praying for us. He's praying that our faith would not fail. He's continually interceding on our behalf to the Father. It's this ongoing work of Jesus as our high priest, which empowers our perseverance, which empowers your perseverance and mine. As we're going to learn from Peter, sometimes that perseverance looks as meager as coming to the brink of a failing faith and responding with a tear-filled repentance in the midst of trying circumstances. What should this encouragement do for us? What should the reality that Jesus is praying for us lead us to do? How should we respond? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And here we see God's sovereignty and we see human responsibility in light of the fact that Jesus lives and that he is interceding on our behalf to sustain our faith so that we'll persevere. Our response should be, hold fast your confession. Hold it fast, knowing this, that Christ is there and he's praying and there is power, there's sustaining power and there's persevering power. And I can hold fast my confession, not because of who I am and not because of what I can do, but because of who Jesus is and what he's doing. So be encouraged, persevere in the faith, because Jesus, not only is he praying, but it says that he's sympathetic to our weaknesses. Jesus prayed for Peter, knowing Peter. He knew Peter's personality, he knew Peter's character, he knew Peter's weakness. When Peter was saying, I will follow you to death, was Jesus convinced? No, Jesus knew Peter's weakness, Jesus knew what was coming. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter knew his weaknesses, or Jesus knew Peter's weaknesses, and so Jesus prayed perfectly tailored prayers for Peter. I'll say this morning that Jesus is praying for you. He knows you. He knows your weakness. He knows exactly where your breaking point is. uh, And he knows that better than you know yourself. And so where you are overconfident, he sees your weakness and he prays for your sustained faith. So Jesus prays 
that our faith would not fail. And so with that encouragement, we keep holding on. We hold fast to our confession in the midst of trials and temptations. And so Peter here is humbled. Peter is humbled. He learns after those bold pronouncements of how he would never forsake Christ, and that he has the power to persevere, he, he learns that no, that power doesn't rest in himself. It rests in Christ. It did not res- rest in his own resolve. Instead, it rested in Jesus when Peter lived as one wholly dependent upon him. Peter learns that he's weak and that, frankly, he's helpless without Jesus. What else did Peter learn? Well, he learned that connection to Christ means suffering for Christ. He learned that suffering is often the product of spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes. He learned that our faith is the target of spiritual enemies. He learned that Satan's devices include working in the hearts of others to produce faith-testing circumstances all around us. For this reason, he learned that the fear of man will lead to spiritual failure. He learned that overconfidence in one's own spiritual ability to face such trials will lead to failure. He learned that Christ prays not that we would escape difficulty, but that our faith would endure difficulty. He allowed Peter to go through this testing. He didn't spare him from it. He also learned that absolute dependence upon Christ's ability to guard us through faith is essential to the believer. He learned that suffering tests and strengthens and refines faith, bringing glory and honor to Christ. And lastly, he he learned that remaining faithful through trials provides for us the maturity and ability to comfort others who have to endure the same. Well, how do we know? How do we know that Peter learned all those lessons? I mean, besides the fact that it goes out and weeps bitterly, and if we had time, we'd go and see how Jesus then challenges Peter later after his resurrection and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. Uh, do you love me? Yes. And then uh, he asks him three times, and Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you, and so on. And in that time, what Jesus is doing, he's giving Peter an opportunity uh, basically to express his love uh, three times, kind of a, to counteract those three times they denied Christ. And so he is restored later. But how else do we know that Peter learned these lessons? Because about 30 years later, Peter wrote a couple books, a couple letters. 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to Peter 30 years later as a mature believer. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now listen. Think about where where Peter learned what he writes next. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's faith not only endured, but was strengthened. And not only endured, but it was purified through testing. It was not an enjoyable experience, but the result was more precious than anything a believer could ever want. He says, 
the result is what? A life which results in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see Peter's hard-fought spiritual wisdom later as well in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says this, warning others and encouraging others. Be sober-minded. Be watchful, he says. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, Peter is writing from experience. He's saying, like, I was in the jaws there. I understand because I was in the crosshairs, because I was the prey. I know what I'm talking about. So you, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is the experience of believers in general. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How does Peter know that? Because Peter went through it. He went through the ringer. He, he, he withstood the attack of Satan. And what happened to him after he had suffered a little while? The God of all grace did what? He restored him. He confirmed him. He strengthened him. And he established him. It says to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what else did Peter learn? Christ's intercession for us does not preclude our own efforts to resist Satan. He says, be watchful, be sober-minded. He says, resist him, be firm in your faith. And so that should give us confidence. Christ's intercession should give us confidence to resist. What else did he learn? Resisting Satan is a matter of remaining firm in our faith. You might hear people say, well, Satan, I bind you. Where does the Bible tell us to talk to Satan? You know how you resist Satan? Stay firm in your faith. Use the means of grace. Pursue Christ. You don't resist Satan by uh, addressing Satan. You resist Satan by pursuing Jesus, right? As a, I mean, bind Satan, put a hedge of protection, you know. No. You resist Satan by pursuing Christ. We also resist Satan by having a proper perspective on trials. Peter says, well, these are commonplace. Your brotherhood throughout the world are experiencing those things. So don't think that you're an exception here. Understand that this is part of what it is to attach yourself to Jesus, and our faith overcomes such trials. You're not experiencing something odd, something that we don't have the power to overcome. Our faith is designed to rear up under just such pressures. And he also learns that this suffering brings us to a place of restoration and confirmation and strengthening and establishment in the faith. The restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing, this is exactly what happened to Peter. He endures by the power of Jesus. As a result, Peter's used mightily. Uh, In verse 32 of our passage, Jesus says to Peter, preparing him for the suffering to come, when you have turned again, he says in verse 32, strengthen your brothers. When you get through this, Peter because I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail, when you come out the other side of it, then you turn, use your experience and all that you've learned, and strengthen your brothers. Well, isn't that interesting? Because it seems like those texts that we just read in Peter is exactly what Peter is doing. He's strengthening his brothers based upon the experience that he had. And so going through this has made him a spiritual help to others. But in conclusion here, it didn't take 30 years for Peter to see that type of turnaround. Soon after the ascension of Jesus, we read about the apostles facing persecution in Acts chapter 5. 
In Acts chapter 5, verse 27, it says this, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so here's the apostles being rebuked for preaching Jesus. Verse 29 of Acts 5. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. When Peter was called out by a little servant girl, Hey, you are one of them. I don't know what you're talking about. The fear of man. Here we have Peter saying we must obey God rather than men. He's learned his lesson. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. He's saying this is who we are. We are witnesses of Christ. And so at one point he was saying, I don't know the man. I'm not with him. I'm not associated with him. And now he's saying, we can't do anything but proclaim Christ because we belong to him and we are his witnesses. He continues in verse 40. In verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer honor, dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. A complete turnaround. A complete turnaround. Peter's faith not only endured, but it thrived. Why? Because he's some natural stalwart? Because he's some spiritual giant? No. It's because his Faith was tested by the fire of affliction. He learned through those trials to recognize his own weakness, to recognize that his perseverance doesn't come from his own effort, but it rests upon Jesus. With the confidence that Jesus knows him, with the confidence that Jesus knows his struggles, with the confidence that Jesus knows his weaknesses, with the confidence that Jesus is ever making intercession, forever sustaining his faith, With that confidence, then Peter could say, I'm going to boldly proclaim Christ without compromise through any circumstance. This morning, if you are a believer, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what are your weaknesses. He knows your doubts and he knows your fears. He even knows the frailty of your faith. And if you find that you're hanging on by a shoestring here, you feel like, man, I'm on the precipice, be encouraged. Men and women of the faith have gone through the exact same thing in the past. And uh, what you ought to understand is that Jesus is praying for your faith, that it would not fail. Your faith is designed to endure such circumstances, and you can be confident that he is praying on your behalf. On the one hand, be sober, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And on the other, rejoice and rest in the fact that Jesus is the one who's guarding and sustaining your faith so that you can be found to his praise and his glory at his return. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus. But we can't always untangle man's responsibility and your sovereignty and how they work together. 
But we see here through the example of Peter and through these other texts that on one hand, you've called us to be vigilant, to be sober-minded, to be watchful, to resist Satan. And obviously that takes determination and it takes labor, it takes work, it takes sacrifice. But on the other hand, we see that we are to do this from a place of faith and confidence that Jesus is the one who ultimately sustains our faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning. There are some who may be facing such struggles. Help them to have the confidence that Jesus loves them, that Jesus is sympathetic to their weaknesses, that Jesus knows what they're going through, that Jesus knows their exact point of failure, and that uh, as genuine believers, he will sustain their faith. So help them with that confidence then to be reinvigorated in remaining firm in their own faith and holding fast their confession. So strengthen us that way. And then... For those this morning who are not going through such difficulty, I pray that you'll remind them that uh, such things come to all who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus. So prepare us uh, for those times when they do come and remind us of our weakness, remind us of the fact we're wholly dependent upon Jesus and that without him we can do nothing of spiritual good. And so help us to rest in him. Uh, Remind us that it's not about our performance. It's not about our effort. Remind us it's all about Jesus and his strength and his ability. And then, Lord, lastly, we just pray for those who are not Christians. We pray that they see their need for Jesus and that they'd come to him, receiving him as Savior and Lord. We thank you for all of this in his name. Amen.